0: This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined.
2: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey, and I am joined as I usually am by uh, my co-host, Sheila Warren. Uh, we come to you, uh, as always, on the CD podcast network, the Coindesk podcast network, and you can find us there or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, as always, we'd really love to hear from you. So tell us what you think of this particular recording or any of our previous episodes, and you can do so by emailing podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line, Money Reimagined. Now, Sheila, I mean, the, the, the news flow, and Coindesk is a news organization, so we have a duty to, to keep up with the news is once again kind of dominated with the regulatory conversation. I think though that you and I are probably feeling a little bit of regulation burnout. So I'm more excited about getting to that Snoop Dogg clip yes. that we're going to play in it. That's going to be much more fun. But perfunctory, let's get some of this news out of the way. Obviously, the the big lawsuits, that's dominating the, the conversation, the Coinbase uh, one in particular, but of course, also against Binance. And towards the end of the week and then the weekend, a lot of focus on the impact that it has had on the 13 separate tokens that were named in the lawsuit against Coinbase. Some some really important ones in there, Solana and, and Polygon and then and Algorand, um, you know, being identified as essentially unregistered securities and and that creating sort of like a lot of angst and Sheila, one interesting development today, at least, um, is that uh, Ripple was allowed to admit into court the results of, of an inquiry into some emails that were shared at the SEC. This is in its lawsuit, the SEC's lawsuit against uh, Ripple, which has been going on for three years now. Um, and re- regarding uh, a speech that the former head of, of the SEC's uh, corporate division, uh, Bill Hinman, um, ha- had introduced, and it was it, something that became known as the Hinman Doctrine that talked really specifically about about Ethereum, about Ether, and saying that Ether, it had sort of evolved from being a security to not being a security over time in in terms of it becoming a more decentralized protocol, and that raised this possibility that, you know, with sufficient decentralization, um, a protocol doesn't have to be a security, a token doesn't have to be a security, and, and the Ripple guys are sort of arguing that this is, you know... Uh, are basically, biased. The same same logic could be applied to Ripple, and and that that if you look at the SEC's deliberation over this, that went into the speech, and the SEC didn't want this this evidence admitted, and it finally was admitted, that there was a lot of thinking going into this idea, and that that's an underpinning of what this could be. And I think this is just interesting right now, um, as these thirteen protocols are, are, and and obviously so many others by implication are grappling with how do they prove themselves. There's there's a real wish that this particular position does somehow become recognized, um, whether by the SEC or or maybe through some of the legislation that's being introduced. And we, of course, have the House, the draft of the bill from um, McHenry and Thompson in the House that I think alludes to some of these ideas that there's a safe harbor period, Hester Purse's idea, and so forth, that you might have this transitional thing. So, Anyway, I think that that's, if there's some sort of hope maybe for how this thing gets resolved, it's this sort of concept of the transition, the Hinman concept that holds out the possibility that really, you know, these laws are outdated for these decentralized networks in which there is essentially, if it reaches that level, no one is sufficiently in charge to be able to point to the entity that would be essentially responsible.
1: Well, yeah, I think as always. You put something an email, it kind of lives forever, right? Number one. In this case, I think this is something that is, it just demonstrates a, a real understanding of the complexity of this space. And what I think it really demonstrates is how tied uh, the view of, of the commission is to individuals, which I find really hmm. challenging, you know? Uh, and there is this open question as to the amount of authority an individual, let alone a commission or an agency, really has in. You know, making these assessments and determinations outside of Congress acting itself. So, again, I don't think the concept of a path to decentralization is a is a new one. To me, it seems like pretty obvious. I've always kind of thought it seems pretty obvious. Uh, There's devil in the details, of course, but every day we're seeing kind of new evidence of different uh, positions on things. You know, coming out from various places. And again, I'm just reminded of like that running. You know. I don't know if it's a joke or what it is, but that running statement in the, in crypto, which is like, if you don't like what an agency says one day, just, you know, wait a couple of days and mm-hmm. someone else will say something else, either a different agency or a different person or a person who used to be in an agency. I mean, because this is complicated stuff. And I think if you need any more evidence than the fact that you've had these different views from knowledgeable people, and you know, I'll, I'll give Gary Gunsler that kind of credit. You know, I think this is it, right? So people who uh, whose job it is to kind of assess what to do have these positions that are complicated because it's a complicated space, but it's high time that we figure it out. And mm. frankly, I think, you know, I, I don't fault anyone for being kind of bored with all of this, right. It's like Europe's landed this, the UK is getting there. Singapore has a view, like, come on, you know, like, on some mm. level, just yeah. figure it out and move on, you know, <laughs> like move on with our lives. And on that note, I'm so excited. We're going to pivot today beyond this into some things that are really exciting that are happening in this space. I was down in LA uh, briefly last week, I think it was time has no meaning. And just meeting with some folks who remain super excited about digital collectibles, about NFTs, we were talking a lot about, you know, the writer strike, right? And why are writers striking? Well, if you aren't paying attention to that in the crypto industry, you probably should, because the reason they're striking is largely because of streaming and the way that streaming uh, is providing or not providing <laughs> uh, income to people. And the ways that these new, again, kind of web2 platform-based models, Have managed, I think, and you know, I'm not going to assign intent here necessarily because I don't, I'm not deeply familiar with the economics of these models myself yet. But they've basically squeezed out a lot of writers, uh, who again are the ones that create the content. I think you've had people like Quinta Brunson, Abbott Elementary, fantastic show, who said she's a writer first and foremost, and you know, her characters on her on her award winning show wouldn't have uh, wouldn't be successful. They wouldn't have anything to do if there weren't for the writers. And ultimately, I think. We recognize the importance of of writers to uh, our perceptions about things, and the idea that a lot of our culture is shaped by what happens in a writer's room and how an industry, how how a you know a sector, how an individual, frankly, is portrayed. Um, the popularity of everything from true crime to ten thousand documentaries about you know failed tech bros, you know, all of that is decisions made by producers and by studios, but also ultimately the, the devil and the details come down to what the writers decide to put in there. So. I think there's so many applications for this space that once we land these rules around how to deal with tokens and what are they and aren't they and how to classify the asset you know i'm I'm hoping we can get back to the broader discussion about the exciting innovation that this technology and frankly tokens and the crypto governance models that they enable allow Mm. so to that end yeah i know we yeah
2: let's go let's go there so 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 that's great because i mean quickly just before we Play that clip that I think we're going to hear because I think Snoop Dogg kind of nails what you're talking about. The the challenge of streaming, just to highlight that in the news flow, just today on on CoinDesk we have three separate stories that seem to emphasize the fact that no matter what, with all of the rubbish that's going on in Washington, you are seeing these these announcements. And so we've got Guy Fieri and Sammy Hagar, who are together, like you know, a couple of bros in their own right, I would say, but nonetheless launching their Web3 tequila loyalty program. You've got Fawocheus, the uh, the the artist, the young, uh, really exciting uh, NFT artist who's now teamed up with uh, Adidas, Adidas to release NFTs that are connected to physical sneakers. Um, is Snoop himself, which we'll get into in a moment, Snoop Dogg, who's dropped a new NFT that's one that kind of evolves with his tour. And I want to before let's play Snoop, but I want to get back to why I think these three examples are quite telling for where this this industry is going. But uh, Let's play the clip from Snoop at Milken, I think, a month ago, the Milken Institute event.
3: But streaming got to get, get that shit together because I don't understand how the fuck you get paid off for that shit. <laughs> Like, I mean, can somebody explain to me how you can get a billion streams and not get a million dollars? Like, that shit don't make sense to me. Like, I don't know who the fuck running the streaming industry, if you in here or not, but you need to give us some information on how the fuck to track this money down. Because one plus one ain't adding up to two. That shit don't add up. And I have to say it because that's the main gripe with a lot of us artists is that we do major numbers with streams and this, shit, but it don't add up to the money. Like, what the fuck is the money? When I first came out, my records would sell based off of physical. If you sold a million copies, that means if $9.99, $9 million, you get this percentage. That's what it is. So if I sell how many streams, how much money do I get? It's not being translated and, and it's not working for the artist right now. And I just want to speak to that in yeah, the music no, industry. Tough. Like, that's fucked up. Right. And
2: uh, Snoop
1: nails it, as always.
2: Yeah. yeah. Apologies <laughs> for all the bleeps. It's going to, I think he can get through <laughs> it all. Our
1: producer for all the, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, look, the, the profit of our time. Okay. I mean, he just basically nails it. And what? He nailed he it. Addily nailed it. Listen to creators.
2: Sometimes you just have to boil down to that simple point. Like, yeah. where is the money? Look, you know, you don't add up. You know, literally, matter. where's the money? Yeah, because it's somewhere. It's somewhere. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, it really is a, a core problem. I think, you know, you mentioned the, the writer's strike. I mean, a lot of this speaks to this. And I, I know, you know, we know people because you know, CoinDisc gets involved in our own productions. We have some some documentary things that we've worked on. And the struggle right now of trying to get the streaming platforms to fund these things. And then a friend of mine, Les Borsay from Wave Financial, produced this piece the other day for Spin. And he, He just pointed out that Spotify itself does not make any money. It's dominant. It's everywhere. But is it the Amazon that is going to eventually just own everything? Maybe. But the biggest problem they face is the huge licensing fee component that they pay to those dinosaurs, (laughs) the old record labels that sit in the middle of this. And when that deal was struck, when Spotify sat down with the labels, it was an afterthought that they realized, oh, we need to cut the, the artists in here. And they agreed that, and this is the answer actually Snoop's question, but it's still his point was still valid. They get 0.08 of a cent per stream, which is just so diminutively tiny yeah. and stupid that it doesn't matter. And that was the deal that Spotify struck with the record labels on behalf of the artists, right? So in this environment where there is, there is less money to go around, where there are these artists working and building, and our the content that we consume is just so fundamental to what the digital economy is. There is such a breakdown that it feels as if this is the moment for these alternative operations. And the yeah. other thing that I think is significant about those three examples, and, and and by the way, a lot more that we're seeing right now is that finally, <laughs> I think the world is waking up to the idea that NFTs are not just these speculative vehicles to bet on. You know, whether it's a board eight PHP or whether it's actually some piece of art like a beep, but like it, there is this functionality. There's this utility to NFTs that it unlocks content because each of those guys, you know, there's special deals around Guy Fieri's tequila, and there's like a there's a physical sneaker attached to Fawcett's things, and then there's this actual evolution of the NFT with Snoop Dogg's tour that's there. So this idea that the experience, the content, the the world that we already have for people gets enhanced and special deals and special engagement starts to emerge because this NFT unlocks that. That I think is where a lot of this is going and it becomes really exciting. So there's some really interesting movement underway around this space right now.
1: Yeah. And I think it's really driven by necessity. And and again, you know, Snoop nails it, that's a sentiment expressed by folks all over sports and entertainment, fashion, you know, who are saying we can no longer practice our craft. It was always, you know, a moonshot, right? To be to be the person who gets the the deal, right? The person who gets signed by the NBA or whatever it is, right? That was always really, really hard to do and took a tremendous amount of not just talent, but luck. But now, I even mean, when you do that, it's, it's proving to be challenging to kind of uh, make that available to anybody who doesn't come kind of pre-funded. And that's a huge issue, you know, because I think we try to pretend in our culture that, the arts and sport are kind of the last bastions of, of true meritocracy. I think no one has illusions that other kinds of things are not about you know mm-hmm. sort of non meritocratic kind of uh, assessment. Mm-hmm. But we try to pretend that there's democracy there, but we know it's not true. There's a nepotism network at work, you know, in Hollywood like anywhere else, right? And and having that leg up of having someone in the industry or having those connections or anything has always been the case. But the reality is, if if people just simply can't afford to pursue these passions, and we've had episodes of the show talking about this in the past, talking about going to art school, what that costs, what art school does and doesn't do for you, right? I think a couple about a year ago, we had a whole series on this talking to artists about what that meant and what that investment would mean and how you get people to be aware of your work and how you do that when you can do it yourself using an NFT, how much more lucrative that is, but also how much more viral gets distributed. So someone's not kind of putting a choke point on or a chokehold on who gets to see your art, right? They're actually saying this could kind of be something that is more democratized in terms of, the viewership and people who can appreciate what it is you're doing. And that's true across visual arts. It's true across digital arts, music, you know, everything out fashion, all these. So I think we're just, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of digital collectibles of NFTs of what they can do. And that's not even getting into the less sexy, more functional use cases. Ones that don't necessarily provide a giant stream of income to a creator, but ones that are a small stream of income to a creator for that matter, but ones that are really just to your point, and you mentioned ticketing, right? other kinds of of things we can do that are going to provide this ability to minimize fraud, minimize, you know, bots that go in and steal all the tickets, you know, and then try to resell them for exorbitant prices. I mean, there's things we can do that are going to democratize access to things like concert tickets. And I don't know a parent this summer who hasn't been like, oh, my God, I didn't get the Taylor Swift tickets or I didn't get the whatever, you know, concert tickets, right? Or I'm the big hero, and people post on social media like I'm the big hero because I got my kid these concert tickets. There are always going to be scarcity around these things, but that's exactly what NFTs are about—digital scarcity, right? That's exactly what our entire right. space is about is: digital scarcity and how you can actually make that more dem- democratic in terms of access. So, again, I think there's so much that that's set and poised to happen, and my hope is that this regulatory logjam and kind of position that we're in right now of spinning wheels to some extent, which is which is again very painful for the companies and the, and the tokens involved. And, and frankly, like I think just unconscionable in many ways, uh, actually we'll use that word deliberately. I'm hoping we can just, you know, we can hang in and get through this period because there is an explosion that's going to happen in terms of the uses, not just around digital collectibles and NFTs, but around the economics that underlie that and the governance that underlies who gets access to these things when, for how long, you know, and, and how does it all work? I don't know. It is a reason I remain very, not just committed to this space, but committed to a regulatory model that doesn't just over-index on a very narrow view of what the industry is about and a view that does not even have the imagination to conceive of other kinds of things that are, again, poised to break
2: into the mainstream. I hate to sort of like, I I promise, I'm just going to go briefly to regulation. I'm going to go back again here. But like the debate in the UK was about whether or not they, whether Tokens should be regulated as a part of financial services or gambling, or, or how about neither? <laughs> you know, wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't there be a world in which we could uh, look at these as as products, as as part of this broader experience that a consumer has? And just as you know, I I would have membership to Giant Stadium that I could then on a ongoing perennial seats access, I could sell that to somebody else. The idea that. This has to be seen through the, that lens, I think, is one of the major, major problems that holds back these otherwise really creative ideas. But getting back to that in particular, like you were talking about, you know, the Taylor Swift story. And then this is also about a story about Ticketmaster, right? Ticketmaster, you know, talk about the most obvious, egregious monopoly, right? They own not only the primary market, they own StubHub, the secondary market for these yeah. massive. So, and, and the thing that's what really gives this model's potential is that it's it's actually for once really easy to point out. Let's say the bad guys, right? The ticket masters, the Spotify, the you know. And this is not to to, to call out those companies per se, but it is literally these platforms in the middle, and everybody else is loo- losing on it, including really successful artists like Snoop Dogg and really, really sort of small artists. But not only them. It's brands who have had to go through the platforms to get exposure. You know, it's everybody, and so there is this true kind of core value proposition, and also true rebelliousness of what crypto is about that I think comes to the fore in a very clear way here. And that is this disintermediation of these middle of these middlemen of these players. It's an easy story to tell, which I which I like. The other thing I think is really quite interesting about this is that the entities that have been the gatekeepers of culture, of our culture, of everything. The record labels, the galleries, mm-hmm. the, the film studios, right? These are the entities that have decided what gets produced and what doesn't, and therefore what we watch, what we, what we read, what we view, and what we don't. The idea that now, once you remove those, this what gets out there and what gets worked is actually a conversation between the fan and the creator. I think has the potential to just be sort of radically transformative about what culture itself is. So we, we were actually, you know, Coindesk has entered into a, a contract with Stick Figure Productions to produce a, a, a series of a, a videos, uh, kind of documentary style videos on this concept the, the, it's under the name gatecrasher, which I've always liked. I think it's a great way to describe crashing through these gatekeepers to create something new. But there's this really interesting idea that we're breaking all, breaking down these arbiters of culture what will the world look like if, if, if what taste is is no longer dictated by what a Hollywood studio thinks needs to be? There's a very different looking cultural world that, that may emerge out of this.
0: Are you looking to fast-track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero-knowledge applications, on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY Blockchain's APIs and zero-knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com.
1: You know, what's been so interesting to me is, you know, over the course of the pandemic, the writer strike, et cetera, you actually had streaming platforms going abroad to get shows from other places and then to either subtitle, you know, or whatever them and, and platform them. And that was hugely successful as a model. And during the strike, in fact, one of the strategies is to go um, to other countries and pick up their most popular shows or the shows that, they, that you know, the, these producers think will actually be popular with a with an english speaking american audience and and bring them over and so in some ways our sense of the world has shrunk because we have access to you know what are what are people watching in other places like you know even some of the bands k pop is a great example blackpink yeah. bollywood shows you mm-hmm. know i yeah. can find all the things my cousins are watching i can find them on netflix or i can find them on prime or hulu or wherever right so all of that i think is connecting us and so there is this sense that the world is bigger than just whatever comes out of you know one place, whether it's Hollywood, Nollywood, Bollywood, you know, Korea, whatever it is. Um, but that being said, you know, there still is this uh stylistic approach to content creation, you know, that I think has been challenged by the Instagrams and the TikToks and and whatnot. But nevertheless, and, and certainly I think, you know, uh, kids, these kids these days are more familiar with kids TikTok. These days. Yeah, you know, kids with TikTok influencers than with sitting through a kind of a half hour scripted show. You know, I, I think that is that is just true. And that's demonstrably true. And so the idea that you can kind of sit in your, you know, take your phone outside and make a video and have people over the world view it and comment on it and all that, and you can make a living doing that is pretty wild. Um but all that being said, you know, monetizing that is not the easy thing that I think some people think it is. I think, you know, there there was some study that came out that I've been trying to Google to find while we're talking, but it said that a disproportionate number of you know, tweens want to be influencers when they grow up, which is, I think is horrifying for a number of reasons. But there's a sense that you just kind of like take a video, post it, and then a stream of income just flows. And that's just not really how it works. <laughs> and so thinking about I, I love your question about who controls our culture, who are the cultural gatekeepers of, of and the arbiters of, you know, what gets seen. And either it's an algorithm on a platform, on a, on like a TikTok or and Instagram, right? And that's mm-hmm. becoming AI, that's becoming more, it's going to become more and more homogenous, or it is decisions made largely by a streaming platform about what content merits and is worthy of being shown. There've been all these notes in the press recently about shows getting canceled and fans screaming about it. But the monetization just not being there um, and the income not being there for those shows to justify another season, despite critical acclaim, despite fans loving it, even despite number of eyeballs that are actually mm. sticking to, the screen to watch it because the economics have just gotten kind of distorted. And it's not about people enjoy or people or, or people and consumers want to see. It's about what's going to pull in, you know, that almighty dollar. Um, and so anything, I think, that can disrupt that and that can provide more, A, more transparency in that stream of income, but also kind of get back to the origins of people creating something because for its own sake and having the ability to have that be visible and viewed, let alone lucrative, I think is is powerful. Um, and I think that part of what I think we're so excited about with with Web3 and Web3 models is the opening up of... The democratization of that access, both so people can see that you know more content have access to more content, but also creators have more ability to actually create. And you know, to just Snoop's note, like he's doing the same thing he's been doing for you know 30 years, but the economics are really different now than they used to be, and he hasn't really changed. You know, he certainly got diehard fans from the 90s. I can tell you that much. You know, but it's that it's just not. It's become almost impossible to kind of make a make. Well, I don't want to say a living because certainly he's doing just fine, but the economics are really, really different. And that's just going to be a deterrent for more and more folks to kind of engage in that kind of activity, which ultimately is what drives us forward as a society.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one thing that's going to be important here is, is also still going to have to be creativity on the behalf of these artists to to think through their business model. So like, I don't think the solution is going to be, hey, you know, Snoop, um, now you can charge everybody for each song because you've got an NFT attached to each stream, right? It's it, the, the more interesting aspect of this is like thinking through what is the relationship between the artist and the fan and and how might that actually sometimes be two way like is there a creative element to it are fans able to contribute ideas or their own stems or you know whatever and into the mix of all this as well comes AI, which is you know along with in fact probably even more so the kind of I didn't say democratization, but the disintermediation again that NFTs are bringing, this idea that there is this automated tool to produce music, and obviously under quite controversial circumstances, literally to take the voice and sounds of of one artist and replicate them, right? (laughs) We've seen this with those Drake songs and so many of these things now, right? All of that's going to have to get litigated and dealt with, but but more I think to the point is that like the means of production just becoming cheaper and cheaper at the same time that there's new mechanisms for how you engage with people. And so I was I, I was thinking about this today because I was thinking about like okay like how were minstrels paid back in the day? Right? They didn't the minstrels yeah. didn't they didn't sell records. Right? they didn't probably put on live shows. They were paid by the king to walk around and entertain them. Thankfully, we're not in that world anymore, where it's just again that the ultimate gatekeeper. Right? Is this is the Little monarch,
1: lord, yeah. the <laughs>
2: lord? But at the same time, the idea that there's you know, different ways in which you're paid for service, and maybe this is a more democratic monarch. It's the it's the sovereign people who are paying you to entertain them in unique and interesting ways, because you can slice and dice what a exclusive, you know, cameo from Snoop now is versus that, and like. Do I have a piece of that through the NFT royalties structure and everything else? I think that this is the exciting part of it in many respects, is that like it is entertainment and it doesn't have to mean a record. It's a piece of it, but there's all these other enter- aspects to what entertainment is. And celebrity is a huge part of that. So my access to that celebrity and do I get special access? These things become more dynamic. And I and I and I think that's an exciting piece of this. You know, and we'll have to wrap this up in a second here, but I think one of the things I, I often come back to is like, okay, do we just create new monopolies of power around this? Even before we go into what the the impact that Spotify and streaming has had, the emergence of social media suddenly meant that, you know, just whatever Justin Bieber, how many millions of followers? Uh, I think hundreds of hundreds of millions of followers. I think there may even be some that are out there in the billion. I'm I'm not I'm not sure. But like these these sorts of people became these hugely powerful. Uh, influences on the world just by virtue of that dominance of their of their followerships, which yeah, is a pretty skewed distribution um in ways that create new forms of power, right? So so I, I think it would be I, naive to assume that this is going to somehow democratize access and production. But certainly the fact that it leads to I think a creative new verve of new ideas for how we produce music, what we what is what is music, what is art, what is what is film, everything else. And how is that influenced not by these gatekeepers but by by everybody? I think that's a really exciting element to this.
1: Yeah. And I I'll end on a bit of a cynical note, because I think it ultimately comes down to how how much you believe that, you know, the the public, as it were, is gonna be an arbiter of, you know. Who should get to decide what has value, mm-hmm. culture, and who gets to decide what stays and what goes, right? And they say history is by the victors and all of that, but who gets to decide what is culturally relevant? And I think I think about this so much in the context of you know education, what we're taught in schools, the histories that get told and don't get told, the content that gets surfaced and not surfaced, you know, all of that is is really challenging, and it's been dominated, you know, by a certain demographic for a very long time. And the openness of that and sort of the enrichment, I think, from bringing in other cultural traditions and other communities into that story has been really powerful over the past decade. So I don't know that I necessarily trust you know, the public because that involves a level of awareness and understanding and engagement and, and just paying attention. But I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we always are going to get there. That being said... I mean, look no further, right? I mean, like, again, our culture is largely dictated these days. The younger you get, the more it's in clips on TikTok or on Instagram, as opposed to anything else. It's it's really not being dictated, I think, even going forward by some of these, you know, by studios or producers or, or any of that stuff the way it used to be. It's part of the reason I think you're seeing the economics of these models change, because again, it's these platforms that are creating, and it's not just streaming platforms, it's these platforms that are creating different kinds of content that are starting to to dominate the cultural landscape, and and those memes are proving to be extraordinarily potent and powerful. And the folks who create those memes are proving they may not be household names to people of our generation, but they're they're definitely household names to people of a younger generation. You see, these are the kinds of folks who get invited out of the White House to come and you know perform or talk or or, or whatever it is. So, a, a lot of this, I think. Is it, it, always going to have pros and cons to it, you know. Always, there's always going to be pros and cons to it. And kind of what we've seen with the news is, you know, now what is news? You know, it's a huge debate. Like, what is journalism? What is news? And you know that better than, than mm-hmm. almost anything that's changed over time. You know, what is quality? What is content? What is art? I mean, we, we we are asking ourselves these questions, and to a large extent, I think so far the movement has been positive. But it could go a different direction. I think it's always wise to be mindful of that as well, and to kind of say, look, I mean. There have been, you know, critics have existed from the dawn of time, people that have kind of said, you know, and, and challengers to those critics, right? I and mean, you go back no further than thinking about Marcel Duchamp, right? And the kind of the idea that what is art? What is found art? Can I put a toilet on a wall and call it mm-hmm. art? Why not? You know, who, did, who gets to decide? These are questions we've asked, I think, and that are important, critical questions we've asked for you know, generations. Um, but the idea now that we're somehow going to put that all in the hands of An- Anons, you know, on, yeah. on the internet. Necessarily, I don't love that. uh I don't love that. But yeah, I also I, it's not like we're doing so so well. I
2: don't really see that happening. I don't see what I what I suppose I mean by like like it's just there'll be new forms of power and new new forms. There will always. be arbiters arbiters of taste. They always will arise. I think the most interesting thing is though that the existing arbiters of taste are going to be dislodged, right? And that there is yeah. this new mechanism by which fans have an engagement. Will they get to? dictate it and do we want them to, or other questions altogether. I do think that ultimately, yeah, we skew towards these sort of monopoly dominant kind of models. That's what kind of capitalism does, whether we like it or not. righty, listen, we could go on. Always fun. And this is a, uh, a really important topic. And I'm just so pleased that we were able to set aside the ongoing, really increasingly boring issue of regulation I I
1: think it must be boring for everybody who's not
2: doing it's, this 20- Yeah and it's just it maybe it's not but it it, it is <laughs> it is just getting it's just uh, hitting a head against a brick wall when we're talking about this stuff right now Anyway look I hopefully this was of, of interest to everybody thank you very much for listening you know I I certainly want to dig more deeply into NFTs and and cultural change. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about this. And and clearly from the news flow, there is a lot happening. So we'll certainly get more guests on to talk about it. I think that'd be fun. Uh, Thank you, Sheila. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Um, Reminder that you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, that we would love to hear from you. So uh, if you feel like weighing in on this topic or anything else we're talking about uh, here on Money Reimagined, please email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. All righty, that's it for now. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at with one l at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.